Hello again, Crosswalk family. Thank you for coming to our hottest service. If you would like a cooler service, try out our 9 or 1030. Uh, thanks for bearing with us. We know it's warm in here, but I'm so glad that you are here. It is such a delight to be able to worship together. And I am just continually amazed and blessed by what's going on here, by the work of God here. Seeing the recap from Thursday night, relaunching our clinic, this is such an important thing for us, one of the ways we love our community well. And we had uh, so many volunteers that turned up. You all turned up with the gifts that you brought, the way you partnered with us on this journey. People were so, so blessed. People that were from our community that were coming here for the first time, they were like, I can't believe you do this every week. You're like, yeah, we do this. This is a good, good work of God every week. We're out here serving the community, and it was a blessing. So I'm so blessed by that. I don't know if you've been blessed, but I've surely been blessed by uh, our, our pastoral staff as they've been holding down the, the mantle here, preaching for the last five, six weeks. Maybe we can give them a hand because they've done so phenomenal. Isai last week, Karen, Andy, Pastor Ron. And you're, you do probably remember that guy, our lead pastor, Tim Gillespie. He is coming back. So we're excited for that next week. He'll be back here in the pulpit. Such a blessing to be part of this team. And one more blessing I have to acknowledge is just the way God is moving throughout the work in Crosswalk. We, uh, my family and I had the opportunity to travel up to northern Idaho this summer. I was invited to be a pastor for a week at Camp Myvadin. And it was awesome, so beautiful. And while we were there, I... I can't even tell you how many people would come up to me and say, we watch Crosswalk every week or whenever we're in town, we go to, we go to Crosswalk. We had people working there, staff that were, they're part of the church in Portland, Crosswalk Portland. I mean, it was so phenomenal and I was just feeling so blessed to know God is moving in such powerful ways. So praise God for that. Uh, as Pastor Ron said, we're in week six of our Deep Faith series but what's unique about today is that we're starting something new. We're in the middle of it, but we're going to start a new, something new here. Because this is a unique series where we're studying two books of the Bible. We're looking at two letters, Paul to Timothy. And so today we start looking at 2 Timothy. So as I was writing and prepping, I was like, I guess I need to kind of like introduce this letter, even though we've been in this series for a while now, we know what's going on. But now we're starting a new letter. And there's a few things that I do think we should all remember or highlight before we jump in. So first is that Paul, as we know from 1 Timothy, is nearing the end of his life. He is near the end. And if he was nearer in first, he's much nearer now in second Timothy. So Paul is nearing the end of his life. He's writing from prison. He's in prison in Rome and it's a pretty dire situation. And because of that, chronologically, this is Paul's last letter that we find in, in scripture. The last thing he wrote before his death. So it's been said, this is Paul's most personal letter. Paul's writing to Timothy, his, his beloved son in the faith. And we don't really know how much time has passed between the writing of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. I looked at so many sources and it seemed like everybody had a different idea. They're like AD 62, then AD 66 and AD 64. I'm like, what, what is it? I'll just tell you, it's sometime in that range, okay? Sometime in that range. Don't know exactly how long between the two letters, but we definitely know that the situation has changed for the worse. Paul is in prison in Rome, and he is 
This imprisonment is much different from other ones that he's had. If you recall some of the stories in Acts when he's in prison, so one of them was like a house arrest. He kind of had like freedom to come and go. Pretty, pretty uh, mild imprisonment, we could say. This one is much different. This is a, a very dark and, and, and desolate dungeon in Rome. People had to search for him to find him. He's bound in chains. And his only escape from this prison is death. So we see here in this letter that his work is nearly over. He is uh, writing these final few words. And here in this letter, we'll, we'll read and we'll study these iconic words from him where he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. What's in store for me is a crown of righteousness. That's coming up in this letter. But first, before he passes, before he, he gives up his life, he has to be sure that the message of the gospel is in good hands. He's got to make sure that it is secure, that, that what he has to share is going to continue to be shared. So he's making provision for the faith before he's gone. So to make sure his transmission to future generations is secure. It makes me wonder, what would your last words be? Right? If you knew that your time on earth was drawing to an end, what would you want to pass on? What would your famous last words be? Right? Paul is saying this is a message that has to be heard. What would be on your heart that you would need to make sure was passed on to the next generation? There's, there's plenty of famous last words that we could share, we could look at here. I'm going to highlight just a few of them. If you recall, George Harrison, one of the Beatles, he said his famous last words, love one another. Beautiful. I love that. Thomas Carlyle, he was a philosopher. He says, so this is death? Well, <laughs> I don't know if I even said that correctly. <laughs> it's like, well, uh, so his famous last words there. Winston Churchill, his were I'm so bored with it all. It's like he's just ready for life to be over. He's like, let's get on with it. Uh, so Paul is writing his famous last words. He knows that his death is imminent. And what I find here in this letter is that there is a very timely word for us here now today. There is practical application. Because like Timothy, we must all be on guard against false teachings, against corruption, against moral and theological confusion. There are things happening in our world today that t tie in with what we're going to be studying here in this letter, apostasy. Paul had to warn Timothy about all these things. So he challenges him to be brave, to be strong, to be steadfast. And I believe those are words for us here and now as well. So as we start to study this letter, Paul begins in his usual way. He says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been set out, sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. I love this line in verse 1. He says he was sent to tell others about the life that has, he has promised, God has promised through faith in Christ. This is a promise of life, right? I know these are just introductory words here, but this 
is gospel, right? This is the good news for dying sinners, that there is life, abundant life, no matter where, where we are in our life. It is beautiful. Paul is saying this is a promise for life. And as, as he is staring death in the face, he's looking beyond. He's thinking about what is beyond, that this gospel is a true word of life, eternal life. It means both here and hereafter. So Paul says this life is promised through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one who not only said that he himself was the life in John 14, but Paul is going to elaborate on this when he says later that Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul, he knows this good news. He has been teaching and preaching this good news for the last 30 years. He's been dedicated to the gospel. He's lived for it. He has suffered for it. And he is about to die for it. So it's safe to say that he knows the gospel does more than just offer life. He knows it is a promise for life to all who are in Christ. As we know from 1 John 5, that he who has the Son has life. So Paul, he pens these words of hope, these words of courage, these words of life to Timothy. And he presents his usual introduction, grace and peace. But you probably notice he, he adds a little twist to this. He adds mercy, grace, mercy, and peace. And what's interesting is you look at every one of Paul's letters, he always begins with grace and peace. Grace and peace to you. And in this letter, it's different. He adds mercy. And one source that I was reading, it said or suggested that uh, maybe pastors need more mercy than others. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But Paul is saying to Timothy, mercy, mercy to you, grace and peace and mercy. Because he's leading this church. He's leading the charge. So these three words, grace, mercy, and peace, are so pregnant with theological meaning. They, they give us a glimpse into the condition of mankind, this sorry condition, as one commentator put it, and it shows God's great love for us. For it is grace that is this free gift of kindness to the undeserving that the world is so desperately needing. It is mercy that's shown to the weak and to the helpless, to all those who cannot help themselves. And peace is the reconciliation, the restoration of harmony to lives that have been spoiled by discord. So all three of these blessings can be summed up in these words, grace to the worthless, mercy to the helpless, and peace to the restless. Do you today recognize your need for any one of these or maybe all of these? Grace, mercy, peace. Maybe you find yourself completely overwhelmed, floundering in, in one of these categories, feeling worthless, feeling helpless, feeling restless. I know I've had many seasons of life where I've experienced these things in deep ways. And what is so beautiful about the grace of God is that he gives all of these blessings so freely and so abundantly. So I'm sure Paul knew that Timothy was in need of grace and mercy and peace. 
But I wonder if maybe he, Paul, was in need of them a bit more. Have you ever had this experience where you like go to buy a present for somebody and you buy the thing that you want or you need? You're like, here, I love this gift. It's for you. But it's like more about you. I'm thinking this is maybe what, what's happening here. Paul's like, grace and mercy and peace to you. But really, I need all these things in abundance here, right? Just Paul was going through a lot. He goes on in verse 3. He says, Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again for I remember your tears as we parted and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. So Paul is kind of in his beginning of this letter thanking God for Timothy's family. Specifically his grandmother and his mother. These women just immersed young Timothy in, in the scriptures. They, they trained him up in the ways that he should go, just like we see happening with these families here today. They brought him up with a knowledge of the Lord, with a knowledge of the Messiah, and they brought him up to be bold in his faith, to walk with God each and every day and to do great things. And I think this really highlights the importance of parents raising their children in, in the faith, raising them with the knowledge of Scripture, raising them in a community of believers that, that support them and journey with them. Every Sabbath, I'm so excited to see what my boys bring back from Sabbath school, like a little craft. It's such a blessing to know that they're part of this church and that they are being brought up in the knowledge of God, right? It is such a gift. Pastor Karen and her team of volunteers do such amazing work for our children. It is a gift. So Paul, he gives thanks for that gift of faith. And then he gives a little bit more encouragement. He says, I know that same faith continues strong in you. Then he says in verse 6, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Love that verse. In verse 6, though, we see this particular gift that's been given to Timothy. It's, he's being told to... Uh, fan it into flames, right? To stoke the fire, to make it hotter. And the Greek word here means to either kindle afresh or to keep in full flame. So I doubt that Paul is suggesting here that Timothy's spark had gone out. I think this is more of a reminder or a nudge to keep this fire burning, to make it glow hotter and stronger. Have you ever been close to a really big fire? Like, one that makes you like, well, have to step back. When we were on this trip this summer, we spent a little bit of time on the Oregon coast with this family friend of ours. And he has 10 acres right on the beach, up on this bluff. And, and what that means is it's not only beautiful, but he has a ton of trees, right? So anytime a tree gets sick or it falls over, it's dead, he chops it up and then he gets it ready to be burnt. And he tells us every time we're there that he cannot burn his wood fast enough. Like he's got so much wood that he'll, he'll have these huge logs and just throw them onto the fire. I usually, you know, chop up the wood and then put in the fire. He's just taking the, I've never seen somebody put such big logs onto a fire. And every single night without fail, 
everyone around the fire is like picking up their chair and moving back. It's like, whoa, whoa. Then another foot back, like the flames were so intense. And this is the image that I have of Timothy, right? He's so, so hot, so on fire with the spirit that when people encountered him, they're so moved. They're, they're transformed by the work of the spirit in his life. And what's beautiful here in verse 7 is that Paul makes this slight shift. He's talking about the gift that's been given to Timothy. And then he changes it and he talks about a gift that's been given to all of us. He says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love and self-discipline. Or other versions say a sound mind or self-control. What's important to note here is that we all have been given this gift. This gift of the Spirit has been graciously and fully given to each and every one of us. Can I get an amen? Because that is amazing to me, right? This is incredible. The gift of the Spirit has been given to us powerfully. Now I know, because I feel this from time to time, you may be thinking, I don't, I don't feel that power. I don't often feel powerful and maybe more often feel feel powerless right or or maybe you're thinking you know what the constant companions of mine are fear and anxiety i don't often feel strong and and self-controlled or maybe your your struggle is more in the realm of of giving love to others loving well or showing grace and mercy maybe that's never been modeled for you so you've never seen a picture of what that looks like i understand that i know we all have our issues, and that's part of the beauty. We're all in this together. We're not alone in the issues that we have. Paul had his issues. Timothy had his issues. Timidity, t- timid little Timothy, right? He had to always be encouraged to be bold and, and, uh, and strong. So we've all got our issues. That's okay. We can recognize that. But let us not be defined by that. Let us not settle into that because the word of God says that we have not been given a spirit of fear, right? That, that spirit, that, that worry, that fear, that powerlessness, that issue, whatever it is, you name it, has not been given to us by God. What we have been given is the exact opposite. Right, You and me and all of us have been given a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of sound mind and self-control. That is the spirit that lives in you. That is the spirit that needs to be fanned to flame. That is the spirit that needs to burn brighter and brighter so that when people encounter you, they are moved by you, by the spirit of God in you. They are transformed by the spirit of God in you. They have to take a step back and say, whoa, give me some of that. Friends, you do not need to accept what God has not given you, right? A spirit of fear is not from the Lord, but a spirit of power and love and self-control is. So receive that, walk in that, live in that spirit. And if the spirit of fear comes upon you, reject it. Do, do what Jesus did, say, get behind me. Right? We don't want room. We don't want our lives to have room for a spirit of fear because we've been given a spirit of power. All right. Get off my soapbox. Keep moving on here. Verse 8, it says, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. 
With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Amen. In verse 8, we see Paul offering Timothy a challenge or a charge here. He's saying to reject any temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of the good news. But he doesn't stop there. He says, and don't be ashamed of me either. Right? He's going a little bit extra here. He's, um, he says, be ready to do what I have done. Be ready to suffer as I have suffered. I don't know if that would be a very encouraging letter to receive, Right? Hey, man, I'm in prison for preaching the gospel, that thing we're called to do. I'm about to die for it. You should join me. <laughs> Come follow me. <laughs> I'd be praying for that spirit of power. Lord, give me strength. <laughs> but Paul is being specific here, and he's saying, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of me. Because there has been this negative stigma that's been on Paul. People are beginning to question his authority because he's been in prison so much. So he has to remind Timothy of the purpose behind it all. He has to make sure that Timothy knows the truth and that he can stand firm in it. So things had gotten so bad with Paul that he had, uh, yeah, people were beginning to doubt his calling as an apostle. And I would imagine you too may have questions or doubts about your pastors if we were in and out of prison all the time. Like, wait, what? <laughs> What's happening here? But as we heard from Pastor Isai last week, Paul was uh, a go-getter, right? We, he was talking about this riot in Ephesus and people were going nuts and Paul wanted to go there and people said, no, stay away, they're going to kill you. So Paul was like, I'm going in. And that was his style, that was his mode. So Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel but accept this calling. Don't be ashamed of these chains. Accept this suffering. Then he gives him good reason for that. He says, for God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Thank God for that amazing grace. This highlights and shows so plainly that the source of our salvation is not in our own works. Right? There's nothing that we did, nothing we can do that would earn this. This is something we don't deserve even, and yet it is so freely given, so graciously given to us. Praise God for that. God gave us this grace in Christ Jesus before we did any good works before we were born and could even do any good works. And it says this was his plan from the beginning, before time, before history, throughout eternity. And what's so beautiful here as well, I love that he says, he saved us and called us. So it says that our coming to God is in response to his calling, to his pursuit of us. Isn't that beautiful? That we didn't have to initiate this search. We didn't have to go after God. He found us. He pursued us. And he is so kind towards us. So our duty then is to respond. Right? Our duty then is to receive this grace and live fully in it. Verse 10, it goes on and it says, And now 
he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. He made it plain, it says. The grace of God was made plain in Christ Jesus. I almost don't like saying that because it makes it sound so simple or so basic, right? But it is so true. This deep and unending grace is seen so clearly. It is made evident and obvious in the life of Christ. We learn a lot about grace from Paul and through his writings. Over a hundred times in his letters, he mentions grace. He's teaching the churches about grace. But did you know that in the Gospels, Jesus never once used the word grace? Not a single time. Jesus instead would show grace. Or he would tell a story about a young son who took his inheritance early and then went and squandered his inheritance on wild living. And when it got so bad, he realized the error of his ways, he comes back home and his father's arms are open wide. He's given this incredible love, incredible forgiveness, lavish, extravagant grace and mercy. That is the way Jesus showed grace. And there's so much to learn about grace. I love that. But what's better than hearing or learning about it is experiencing it. In his book, Grace is Greater, Kyle Eidelman, this pastor, he says, grace is compelling when explained, but irresistible when experienced. It is totally necessary, essential for us to learn about grace, for it to be explained to us but it is absolutely essential for us to experience grace. I'm sure we've heard countless sermons on grace. We've learned verses and texts. We've memorized them. But the real teacher, the thing that we learn about grace from the most is when we encounter it and when we receive it. So the truth is that grace explained is necessary, but grace experienced is essential. When you have tasted and you have seen how good the grace of God is, it is transformative. It is so radical. It has the power to change your life if you're open to it. Unfortunately, the sad and sometimes ugly truth is that some people are not, right? Many people dismiss the grace of God because they don't recognize and they don't acknowledge their need for it. Eidelman, he explains that our ability to appreciate grace is in direct correlation to the degree to which we acknowledge our need for it. So the more we recognize the ugliness of our sins and the wretchedness of our sinful nature, the more we can appreciate the beauty of God's grace. Now at times, we maybe have the tendency to hold ourselves in pretty high esteem, right? We think pretty highly of ourselves, or I do from time to time, thinking, oh, I'm a pretty good person, or oh, I'm doing pretty great. I didn't sin that badly this week. You know, we, we have this tendency to hold ourselves in high regard. And the truth is, as long as we think that we are not that bad, grace will never seem that good, right? Scripture is very clear about the reality of our sin. It says we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. It says, yet now in God, his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. 
He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sins. My friends, we are in constant and desperate need of that deep and unending grace. And the beauty of that grace is that it is immensely deep and incredibly wide. It is always available, always accessible, always freely given to each and every one of us. So may we all acknowledge our need for it and willingly receive it. As we go throughout this letter, we're going to see Paul use these two words multiple times. The Greek words are su day. And what those mean is, but as for you. The theologian John Stott, he says that these two words crystallize this letter for him. He says, these two little monosyllables have incredible implications for life. They invite us to recognize what we are being called to. Christ, through Paul, called Timothy to be different, to be set apart. He called him to stand firm in the truth, to guard the gospel, to not be ashamed about it. He called him to revel in the righteousness of God and receive the power of his Holy Spirit, to not be timid, to not be afraid, but to be bold and to have a sound mind. So as we leave here today, my question for you is what is your Sue day? What is God calling you to specifically today? As for you, may you be bold. May you be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and love and others well, have self-control and sound mind. May you find grace and mercy and peace in the arms of our loving Father. Let's pray together. God of all grace and mercy and peace, you are such a good Father. We thank you for this word, this strong word that encourages us to stand firm in the gospel, to not be ashamed, to live it out, to live boldly in the spirit that you've given us, this spirit of power, the spirit of love and sound mind. Lord, may we feel that. May we experience that. May when another spirit tries to come into our lives, may we reject that and claim the power that you have given to us. Lord, it's such a gift. Thank you so much, Lord, for being a God of grace who, who welcomes us anytime, no matter where we are in life, no matter what we've done, your grace and mercy is so abundant. So Lord, may we recognize that grace. May we receive that grace for it is always there for us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and worship one more time?